Hello, and thank you for listening to Iconocast. This is Mike Hobrick. I want to welcome you to episode number 25. This is the second part of a two-part interview with Bill Shutt. And Greg Layden talks to him about his book, Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. But first, Greg and I are going to talk about two science articles that we found interesting. And then we'll get on to the interview. One of the things I had found was an uh, a article that... Uh, my, my friend Ken Klein sent me, he's a, psychi- a psychiatrist that I know who often sends me really interesting science news, sometimes quite bizarre. And this is a case of a meteorite, I guess it's hard to use the words correctly, a meteor crashed and thus instantly became a meteorite right. um, into her house and ended up in her bed. Now the story is a little bit muddled as exactly what happened, but apparently it flew, and this was in Canada, in B.C., and uh, it, 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 people saw a meteor. People saw what they later said must have been a meteor. It was a fireball, right? It was a fireball somewhere. Yeah. It was construction people that saw it. And she thought, and so did the police, this must be something from the construction site where they were doing blasting and it fell in my house. Mm-hmm. The construction people were like, no, I think we saw something in the sky. And they went and looked, and there's a lump, like a, you know, a softball-sized thing. And I, I found a couple of interesting... It just reminded me of some interesting things. It reminded me of... Excuse me. It reminded me of a... When I first moved to this house we live in now, my, I had an idea of a little home science project, which would be to collect everything magnetic that came through the, the storm drain. Yeah. And it, I was told a long time ago that those would be, most of them would be iron-based meteorites. Really? They just, the dust, a lot of our dust, a, lot, a certain amount of our dust is space stuff that comes in as meteorites, technically. Right. So meteorites explode. They don't disappear. The elements don't just vanish into quantum nothingness. They just become dust. Mm-hmm. And they fall on us, and a lot of it's iron-based. So the iron-based dust that falls on your roof should include a lot of baby meteorites. You can get them out by putting strong magnets in your in your the output of your gutters. So I assume that was true. I was planning on it, and then one day I got his book. I I'll put the link in. I don't remember the name of the book right now, but right. I put the link in in our in our on our list about what really comes down from the sky, and especially here where I live right now, we are a few blocks from the site, the launching pad, of Minnesota's largest fireworks display each year. In our little small town of Plymouth, they have the largest fireworks display in the state. And most of that stuff that falls on you mm-hmm. is from house fires, industrial output, and a lot of it's from fireworks. It's Golden Valley, right? It's no, it's right down the street here right in Plymouth. Right down the street here. The, the, uh, the Music in Plymouth celebration at the, at the Hildy Performance uh, really? Center. It's the biggest one in the state most years. And if we're if the wind's coming this way, not only can you not breathe because the fireworks smoke is so bad, mm-hmm. but this stuff presumably is landing on us over a period of several hours after oh. this thing. Anyway, most of the metallic stuff that comes falls on your roof is not meteorites, it turns out. <laughs> so I was reminded of that. And in this case, in the article, they mention, I don't remember the number now, but they mention how many times a meteor falls on the earth and someone finds it. Dozens. Yeah. At the most. It's not very often. So it's something, and they also don't mention the disposition of the meteorite. I was kind of curious about that. They're extremely valuable. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is a, a this is a, a two point eight pound meteorite. It's going to be worth tens of thousands of dollars. She got it back. I think they examined it and yeah. they returned it to her. They said it was her property. Right. She owns it and she can auction it off yeah. for a lot of money. Right. But what I was kind of curious about was this. I mean, it's coming in pretty pretty high speed. It's got a lot of momentum. You know, it's running. Mm-hmm coming into the atmosphere, it right. appears as a fireball, but then it lands in our house, you know, it doesn't start the roof on fire, and it doesn't start 
her bed on fire. Right. You know, what, I mean, does does the roof cool it? I mean, what exactly well, happens? Okay. First of all, like, obviously, if meteorites were on <laughs> fire, how could alien life come out of them after they landed? <laughs> yeah. That's the first thing. Yeah. But no, that's a good question. And first of all, it also was, uh, this meteorite did not cause a giant crater. No. It didn't cause any kind of crater. So, obviously, they must be going really slow by the time they hit the Earth. But, right, they go to terminal velocity in right. the Earth, which would be like 130 miles an hour probably for something like a meteorite or maybe 200 miles an hour. And how fast do you have to be going to put a hole in a roof? I know the Mythbusters once accidentally shot a cannon at someone's house and it put, went through their That's right. wall. Yeah. So, how fast does that go? I don't know. Um, this would be a good Mythbusters episode if they still existed, like... You know how well, I think Jamie still does some some yeah. YouTube videos. Yeah, the living yeah. Mythbusters are still doing yeah. stuff like this. Um, I, I just assume they're not going that fast when they're. I, I guess what happens, I, I suspect what happens is above a certain size, meteorites meteorites don't even notice the atmosphere. Those are the ones that come in. They remain as fireballs. Destroy they, the dinosaurs. They destroy yeah. the dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, and below a certain size, they get trapped by the atmosphere and slow down a lot. And so they're all going just fast enough to go through the trunk of your, you know, nineteen fifty seven. Uh, Rambler, yeah. or wherever that, that's happened, <laughs> or they go through just through your roof, and you know they wouldn't get to the first floor of the basement. They, mm -hmm. they hit the bed and they bounce off or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's I, I, that's an interesting aspect of that story too. And we all just hope someday a meteor like a meteor lands near us, but not too near. Yeah. <laughs> one of the one of the great underrated movies is the one titled Evolution. Oh, I love that movie. But Orlando, um, um, not not Bloom, but um, is um, is David Duchovny and um, yeah, David Duchovny, yeah, and and a meteor hits in the desert. Yeah, and so these two washed up. One is a washed up biology teacher. Yeah, and the other is a washed up some other kind of teacher or something, right? Yeah. Wants, and then there's the younger guy who wants to be a fireman someday. Yeah, <laughs> and, as far as Gumps type. Anyway, and the meteor lands by, and of course, there's alien life coming out of it, and it's very impressive. And, the big scene in this shopping mall with a flying. Thing. Sure develops quickly. So, but we won't do any spoiler alerts on that movie. I think people should watch it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a good movie. Evolution. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you had another one here on COVID nineteen. Yeah. So for some reason, this is in this is a study that was done in the richer countries in Europe, um, and over the last um, well during the pandemic, they've done studies on what the birth rate has been and it seems to have slowed down somewhat um, in many countries such as Italy and in uh, uh, Central Europe and so forth and they weren't exactly clear as to what might have happened um, and why I mean I do know that like on OkCupid um, people may have hesitated to date for a while but you know as soon as the vaccine was available there was a there was an availability to put on your profile that you've been vaccinated, so maybe it could have picked up after that. But there, were, there was a lot of disruption in our economy due to that, and I'm wondering if the anthropologist in the house might have some ideas as far as what might cause the what might cause the birth rate to slow down. Yeah, I mean, I do have some ideas. I, I, one thing I think is interesting is that we, as a society, and most I think societies are like this have less understanding of the most important thing you know and we we don't we don't understand the average person walking around will have more misconceptions about birth rate yeah. fertility and fecundity yet that sort of without fertility and fecundity wouldn't have a species 
So it's just interesting that we know so little about these things, just as people. Um, one of one of the uh, my favorite things to do with a group of students is to mention that um, rich people have more babies than poor people. That the myth that poor people have more babies than rich people is a myth, mm -hmm. and people become angry, send oh. me nasty notes. I mean, I get people storm out of the classroom. I mean, it can be intense because this is really just not what people believe. And it, it, right now, at this moment in the United States of America, it completely slaps in the face a major theory of society that you see in the right wing, the replacement theory. Oh, sure. Replacement theory requires that the undesirables have, are reproducing faster and or arriving at a high rate. Yeah. Right? And um, what really happens in that regard is that how many fertility rates, offspring production rates among humans depends upon the context. So people living in relative, in where in people living where your, your household economy is based upon your household production. In other words, you're agrarian and you have a farm or you mm -hmm. are farm workers working on someone else's farm. Your household incomes depends upon how many kids there are. You have high uh, morbidity, morbidity and mortality rates among children. So you need even more kids, therefore. And this may be backed up in it might fit well with a religious belief in having children and that usually requires women having less power because that religious belief right. will be enforced by the men on the women and so uh, all those things together result in people in certain parts of the world in certain periods of time having large numbers of offspring when those exact people move say from Honduras to the United States as an example they will continue to have those practices and beliefs and they'll continue to have a high birth rate but their kids will their birth rate will drop to a fraction so the second generation... The second generation, and that's, yeah. the, that's the demographic transition. So we, so the idea that poor people have more babies than rich people is reinforced by the fact that when people move from one society to an entirely different society, their birth rate might go down. But it's not a fair question. Rich people having more babies or less babies than poor people can only be asked within a given society. You can't change the rules completely. That's like moving the goalpost to a different... That's like comparing... Basketball core scores to football scores. Yeah, like this team gets more scores than that team. Well, it's a basketball team. The football team has a fewer scores. I mean, it's, it's just unfair. Within a society, we see that people with more wealth and more resources tend to have more offspring than people with fewer resources. And uh, here we have a case where people are shifting to having fewer offspring. So your point is exactly right. It's basically we disrupt the economy, add stress, mess things up, birth rate goes down. Okay. So, I mean, in general, I think it's fair to say that birth rate drops when things improve. Mm -hmm. When you have a demographic transition, you now have medical care. Your kids have a, a almost zero mortality rate, almost a low morbidity rate. You don't need lots of them to till the fields because they're going to go to high school and then become, you know, store clerks or museum curators or um, something else. And, uh, or when you have a situation where things get bad and conditions go down and you have a lower reproductive rate. So I think either of those two things can push it and that's what we're seeing here. Mm -hmm. I think with the agricultural thing too is that um, that kind of brings up another point too is in, with the with the birth rate uh, but also like the uh, child morbidity rate where um, they would they would tend to have more children just because of the fact that children would die um, like up to the age of five, you have a much higher mortality rate in an agricultural um, area than when you would in like an uh, urban or um, urban 
setting where childhood death is not as likely. Yeah. And which also kind of brings up the issue. I mean, it's, it's really interesting when you talk about it because there's so many things pop into your mind. Like one of them is like the reason that the average um, age of a human is gone up so much is not necessarily people live longer. It's just that more people survive past five years right. old than what used to be. Right. So you're taking that to the overall mean. Right. The age yeah. at which you die of old age yeah. probably has increased a little bit. Yeah. There's evidence for that. People age faster in some settings. But that's not the explanation for right. a change in birth rate. It's morbidity and mortality in early younger ages for sure. Yeah. Yeah. One piece of news is that I suggested to you earlier we might ask John Cook to come on. Yeah. He said yes. Oh. Okay. So we'll get John Cook on here, the author and creator of Cranky Uncle. Okay. Yeah. Maybe yeah, we could do that Some, then. sometime in the next few weeks he'll be on. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right, well, let's see how am I gonna do this. So Greg, we read this book by Bill Shutt. And this is on our circulatory system and it's um about, you know, like the different um stages of uh, evolutionary development of circulatory systems and hearts. And um, I really enjoyed this book. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to participate in the interview, but you did get a chance to talk to Bill. Um, and before we get into this interview, are there some things that we should um, listen for that you and Bill talked about? I think that it, for me, as someone who teaches, occasionally teaches anatomy, I learned uh, new ways to explain anatomy that were interesting. I think that Bill does a great job in his book, as any good science book of this scope would, uh, of, of explaining things in a way that is memorable and relatable to other things. There's a second aspect of this book that is very rarely found in a science book of this type, and that is most science books about a topic will have a few paragraphs or maybe even a chapter in the beginning about the history of science, like how Aristotle was wrong and mm. Galileo said this and blah, blah, blah. What Bill does is he doesn't do any of that in the beginning, and then he goes right he goes two-thirds or half, a little more than halfway through the book, I guess it is, that's when he looks at the history of the ideas. And the history of the ideas about the human body, mainly talking about the heart, mm -hmm. are fascinating. And I personally had a question that I never understood about why is it that medicine has evolved in the way it has evolved. And his book perfectly explains it. And it's, it's kind of a startling finding, and it's near the end of the interview, and I strongly recommend you listen through and hear about it. It's kind of revealing about the nature of humans and the nature of science. Well, excellent. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, it's, um, it's a humorous book. Uh, he's very dry wit. Yes, very dry yeah. wit and interesting perspective. Yeah. The, 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 pers the person speaking is just a person, but the audience is not a human being. Exactly. The audience mm -hmm. is whatever form of life happens to come along to read this book. And yeah. I think that's kind of a cute way of doing <laughs> you're it. You're a blue crab. If yeah. you're a blue crab, you might have disagreed with this point I just made. But, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. And I um, hope you enjoy listening to this. We're gonna, like I said, we'll split it into two parts and um, release those separately. So if it seems like it uh, is too short, well, that's on purpose. I found the your description of the woodland frog, however, at in a sense, all the stuff you're talking about in here, about circulatory system, respiration, and the, and the heart, all of it, it the, when the rubber really hits the road, I think, is with hibernation. Because <laughs> essentially, your heart beats at a certain rate, 
and your respiratory system is doing something in sync with your heart. And hibernate, true hibernation, as you describe it here, is really like your heart beats and you take a little breath and then you don't do it again for several months. <laughs> then you right. do it again. Like how did it, it, this, this woodland frog story is fascinating and it has an element to it that I never realized before. And you know, so how does, how does a woodland frog hibernate? Well, well, first of all, I don't even know if you would consider it to be hibernation because a lot of hibernators, you know, their blood doesn't freeze solid. Their heart is still beating. They're still breathing and they wake up during the winter and move around a bit and then they right. go back to sleep. So it's a it's a way to sort of um, uh, to, to get through times when there's no food out there. I mean, I, 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 I've worked on bats for 30 years and that's primarily the way that that bats, you, you never see bats hibernating in the tropics because there's food year round, but there's no food in, in, in New York or Pennsylvania, insects for these things to eat. So, so they've evolved a way to, to slow down their, their metabolism, um, but they can still wake up. So you always tell people, stay out of the caves. You don't want to wake them up because they have an energy budget that they're on. They've got this fat stored between their shoulder blades, and that's what they burn when they wake up. And if you cause them to wake up you know, when they're not supposed to be waking up, then they can run out of that fat and they'll die. But, but the Northern woodland frog is, is, is very different. It, it has evolved this. First of all, they live in areas that, that were like, like Canada, where, where it gets really cold and, and can be cold for long periods of time during the winter. And they've evolved a, a sort of a different take on this. They allow their entire body to freeze solid, the heart, the blood, it all solidifies. So now, as a biologist, when I first started looking at this and I, and I, I talked to, to researchers, I was like, doesn't that damage the tissue? Because if, if we were to do that, if that would have happened to us, when, when the water in our bodies solidifies, crystallizes, those jagged crystals would tear up cells, tear up tissues, tear up organs. So how is it that, that these frogs are able to, to survive being frozen. I mean, we're talking like frog sickle, frozen like a, like, a, like a rock. And so what takes place here is that as they start to cool down, they release a tremendous, their, their livers release a tremendous amount of glucose. And, and that glucose causes water to leave the tissues and, and to accumulate outside the cells and tissues. So I asked these guys, well, where does it accumulate? Uh, in, in their, in their, basically their abdominal cavity, right? And so I said, well, how much ice are we talking about in here? And they said, well, it looks, it looks like a slushy if you open it up. And so by doing that, their tissues are able to freeze and they, they've sort of sequestered all the water in places where it's not doing any damage. And, and so that is that's clearly unique in, in the animal kingdom. You know, they tried this experiment with a couple of other similarly similarly related frog species and it didn't work frogs died mm -hmm. uh, and they don't know what the stimulus is that that wakes them back up i said to them you know is is there some type of uh what is it that 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 initiates this the the um the heart starting to beat again uh and and they said they don't know and so i made a little note in the book that this needs to be looked into if it's a to me as a perfect graduate student uh um project is, is, is a, this is this is what I do when I write books I'm thinking about like okay so if you really want a cool project this one hasn't yeah. been done yet so get out there and do it that is but, an excellent um, example yeah, so, so, so just I mean a very unique yeah. and and there are all sorts of cool ways that animals cope with um 
with with cold and 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 some of them have you know tie in now to to um to, to medicine I, antarctic ice fish things like that yeah okay on the frogs i'm going to predict this is like darwin predicting the existence of a moth with a two foot long proboscis <laughs> i will predict somewhere in eurasia there is an equivalent homologous frog that is part of someone's cuisine in frozen form um <laughs> just that's just got to be true uh but another thing about that that I thought was really fascinating is that the process starts when ice begins to form around the frog and on its in the frog itself, which causes an exothermic reaction because yep. freezing is exothermic, which sort of stimulates and like frenetically, this is a frenetic, you think of, of hibernation as being, it gets colder and you slow down, it gets colder and you go to sleep, it gets colder and you have a deep sleep. This is like, it gets colder and all of a sudden, all this frenetic biological activity starts happening over several hours to do all these transformations you're talking about. Oh yeah, especially with the glucose release, that wouldn't happen if you were if if you were if everything was starting to freeze. But you're absolutely right about that. As, a, as there's an there's an energy reaction that releases heat, uh, and that's what allows this uh, uh, these these chemical reactions to take place. That 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 set up a, a differential between the the tissues and 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 the non tissues, so that the water leaves the tissues. It's fascinating. Yeah. So this is not a frog sitting in a slowly boiling pot. This is the complete opposite. Um, uh, I, I, you did mention the ice fish. This, is, this has been in the news lately. These are fish that don't have red blood cells, I guess, right? They just use a different way of getting oxygen. Yeah, they don't have hemoglobin. And so you wonder how could a fish survive without, without hemoglobin? And, and, it, and there's this list of reasons why we think this, this mutation happened about 5 million years ago. And so how could they survive in, in, in those types of conditions, that, that Antarctic water? And, it, and that's one of the reasons they have survived because um, you, if, you don't have, if you don't have hemoglobin, you can't, unless you have you know, hemocyanin, a, a different uh, pigment to carry oxygen around your blood, then, then you're sort of out of luck. And, and but, but there, as I said, there are, there, there are a list of reasons why they're able to be successful. And, and, and you get things like, well, cold water carries more oxygen in it. Uh, their blood vessels are four times larger than a normal blood vessel uh, in a fish that size. Same thing with the heart, tremendous sized heart and no scales. So here's one. So the oxygen just diffuses in from the outside, enters into the circulatory system, which is large anyway, and is able to sort of pump this uh, pump uh, blood around, and they've got antifreeze substances in their uh, in their blood that, that that prevent it from freezing, and their metabolism is really low. They sit on the bottom. These are not super active fish that that that, that require tremendous amounts of oxygen. They're sit and wait predators. So yeah. all of these things put together equals, uh, you know, Antarctic ice fish is able has been able to evolve uh, adaptations that allow it to survive in some crazy conditions. So this might be a great example of a great piece of luck where an adaptation where a mutation that relates to hemoglobin occurred and it had it occurred in a tropical bird that would be the end of it for that particular individual that mutation but here it worked it's also though an example of everything alive today has been subject to the whatever environmental conditions the places seen has thrown it at them so uh and and that means cooler conditions sometimes and sometimes often drier conditions. And it was about 5 million years ago. I don't know if there were continental glaciers 5 million years ago uh, that grew in size, but drying conditions started then. It's the beginning, it's the, 
you know, late Miocene, beginning of the Pliocene. So this might be the, one of the most extreme examples of an organism adapted to the present that will not be, ex conditions of which will not be extant with significant global warming. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's, that's a whole lot of global warming if you're talking about warming up the, uh, the Antarctic Ocean to the point where it doesn't carry, where the water doesn't carry as much oxygen anymore. I think these yeah. things have been, you know, we are, that, that's certainly, global warm, warming is, is clearly problematic, but, yeah. but I don't think that, um, I don't think that ichthyologists are worried about that, that it's going to have a major effect on, on, on um, an Arctic ice fish. I might be wrong. But, um, it's yeah, I, it, that's a good question, and that, that I was saying that too. I'm not really sure the extent of it. What the Arctic is unique, what is what makes the Arctic the Arctic, is air temperatures do not go above freezing, except for in that one peninsula that the ice melts off of, um, and that that allows the ice to to melt only a tiny bit in some places in the summer because of sunlight. Um, but that's what's changing, hmm. is that the air temperatures are going. So who knows? I mean. You're right, though. It's probably too cold for that to um, to happen. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit. When it, first of all, I just want to say, when it comes to the biology of the of the circulatory system, I just want to make listeners understand we have not read the book to you here. We've just touched on highlights. It's full of stuff that we have not even mentioned, and so just you know, don't think you're getting away without reading this book. But the second. And, and you all, you, we were kind of running out of time, but you, you spend a lot of, a fair amount of time talking about modern medicine of the heart. And that's really interesting to me. And that's the kind of thing, by the way, when you're doing anatomy and teaching it, that's the kind of stuff that captures students' interest a lot, you know, heart surgery and heart therapies and so on. But there's a mystery that I have always worried about that you solve in this book that to me is really, really important. And I'm going to give you the entree to this discussion by noting the following. Um, in about the 1850s through 1880s, uh, there existed, and, and for 200 years before, there existed technology, the same exact technology that's used today in a general sense by physicists and astronomers. Okay, They had, they had, a, they had a method for looking at light and they knew that looking at light was the key. And then they had math that let them understand how objects spin around and circle each other. And looking at light and understanding how objects spin around and circle each other is the starting point for Einstein's theories of relativity. And it's a starting point for quantum mechanics. And it's a starting point for everything we have in the way of cosmology, every single thing it comes down to those concepts and technologies and tools, some of which go back to the 16th century. And you can take us up to Maxwell, who died in 1879, who wrote the equations that puzzled Einstein that caused him to go forward with his great thinking. Meanwhile, over in medicine, we've got people thinking that milk can turn into blood. Hmm. And we have the invention of the stethoscope in the 19th century. The telescope was centuries old. We have you, you, you outline and chronicle concepts of medicine that, are, that were wrong and that were wrong and wrong and wrong for centuries despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary at any given moment in time. How did that happen? Yeah, that, that, that was sort of interesting 
because when I was writing a book about cannibalism, I asked the question, why do we have this knee-jerk reaction when you mention that word? And, and, and the, the chapter was originally called Blame It on the Greeks. And, and so when I looked at, 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 you know, I started off by looking at a question, where did we get this idea that the heart is tied into emotions and intellect and, 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 and the soul? I could have named that chapter Blame It on the Ancient Egyptians. And, and, and so not only did they come up with this idea of cardiocentrism, that the heart is, is, is the place where you look if you, wanted, you know, if you want to know where emotions come from, for example, but they had a rich uh, medical uh, record. And, and so, and they, got a, they had a lot that was wrong. And so for example, and I could go through this list, uh, and I'm not trying to mock them uh, because they were an ancient society. They didn't have the, anywhere near the tools that, that, that we have nowadays. So, for example, they thought that the arterial, that, that arteries carried, uh, carried air and, and veins carried blood. Now, that information, that um, Egyptian medical information was held in really high esteem by the ancient Greeks. And so from the ancient Greeks, so we're talking about Hippocrates and Aristotle, and, and they were convinced that the heart was, you know, the, the, the place where, uh, where, you could, where you could look for the, for the soul, et cetera. Um, this gets passed on, and, and, and so this information gets passed on to the, to the Romans as well. Now, meantime, the artists are jumping in there going, oh, cardiocentrism, so we can write all of these beautiful poems and, and, uh, and, and, and paintings and all of this stuff depicting the heart as the center of, of, of emotions and, and intellect. But the science was not so good. And when you get into the, the first and second century of Rome, you have a, a, a surgeon by the name of Galen. And Galen was, if anything, he was well-written. Three million words of his were, were recorded. And Galen took a lot of what he, um, a lot of what he determined was based not on being able to work on humans. It was not allowed. He could only work on animals. And he got a lot of stuff wrong himself and picked up a lot of things wrong from, from the, the Greeks and, and, and from the, the Egyptians before him. So things like the four humors, in order to keep you uh, healthy mentally and physically, you had to balance these four liquids that would travel throughout the body, one of them being blood, then black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. You know, black, the fact that black bile doesn't exist, you know, that didn't bother people, I guess. But in any event, after Galen died, and he lived in the second century CE, um, and after Rome fell, his works, which, as I said, three million words, were not immediately translated into Latin, which was the, 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 the at least in the West, it was the language of scholarship. And so they sat. And then the early medieval period, his works were finally translated into Arabic by Syrian Christian scholars. And so when the West finally translated Galen's work into Latin, it was from the Arabic that was written by, by Christians. So there was this sort of Christian slant on that information. And when the church saw that, church leaders read these things or, or heard about them, they were like, this is the, the, this is the end all, that's it. You don't need to research, you don't need to know, do anything. Galen's word is divinely inspired. We follow everything that Galen says rather than um, have any type of, of, of research or questioning what he might have said. So for 1500 years, that was the, in a sense in the West, that was the law. 
and 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 so you in a really it was a time of stagnation in the in in the medical field where in other areas that you were getting tremendous innovation so that was a bit problematic yeah and that's like i i had sort of i had noticed i, I just by chance several years ago i worked on an archaeology project in minneapolis which was uh in a place called a neighborhood called elliott park which is named after elliott park which is a park and that was named after a guy named elliott who was a major patron of the hospital that was there when the hospital was torn down they made it into a park and it was the Minneapolis homeopathic hospital. And it existed in the 1920s, 30s, mainly. And um, at the time, in the early 20th century, if you wanted to get cured of a disease and you went to a regular medical facility, you'd probably get sicker. You might get sicker, depending on what disease was. If you went to a homeopathic facility, you wouldn't get sicker because homeopathic medicine, the credo is for, for the Hippocratic oath says, do no harm. The, the homeopathic oath is do no thing. <laughs> Just yeah. don't do anything. And, and it, in that sense, there was this brief period of a few decades in American medicine where I think homeopathy was better than modern medicine because it didn't do anything. Huh. Whereas modern medicine was throwing leeches on you and giving you arsenic and whatever else. You have a list, you have a couple of paragraphs in your book, you're talking about ammonia, arsenic, bitter ale, bismuth, um, uh, this long list of things that were included in medicines, some of which were probably did have medical uses and we might even use them now, but doctors are poisoning people in the early 20th century. And um, so in, it, we, are, we, have, we had a society in which every Western city had multiple hospitals and medicine was, like you said, ruined. <laughs> it, is, it was in the last decades of that period of, of a couple of millennia of, of it not advancing and being really backwards. And the fact that it was codified by religious belief is the part I didn't know. I, 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 that's, that's, you talk about that and document that in your book, that it was like, all science was under the, under the thumb of the church at various times. We all know that, right? Galileo. But um, somehow medicine got more strictly controlled and wasn't allowed to advance and were behind in, by decades. In the West, I mean, in, in, in other places that didn't get the airplay that we have uh, here, um, then there, there were advances in places like the Middle East and in China, they were off doing their own thing. So, so, so you gotta sort of, um, you gotta sort of put an asterisk on that, 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 that this right. is not a worldwide phenomenon. It's just that um, not a lot of attention was paid to that sort of thing uh, for, for a very, very long period of time. Yeah. The, the other, another interesting thing I thought, and I've always kind of wondered about this is how important is the role of sterile or at least relatively clean small tubes? I mean, if you go to someone, see, visit someone in the hospital and they're reasonably sick, there are tubes sticking in them in all different parts. And the technology for those things couldn't have been around in the Middle Ages. Uh, how do you make a tube that you can act? And you talk about the early um, pre-angioplasty, um, you know, people sticking tubes into their veins and uh, developing those technologies, along with stories about heart, mechanical hearts. I, I had forgotten, I had forgotten about baby Faye. I had forgotten about Barney Clark. Right. Uh, baby Faye turned out to be, you know, people ask me, what was the thing that, you, that, that most affected you when you, after writing this book? And it was that, it was the baby Faye story, which ultimately 
it was tragic. And, and but it turned out to be sort of the anti-Galen because it was yeah. it, for for those for your listeners that that don't remember this. Um, in 1984, a surgeon by the name of Leonard Bailey um, transplanted a, a neonatal or newborn baboon heart into the chest of a desperately ill, dying baby who became known in the media as Baby Faye. And, um, and Baby Faye lived for, uh, for, for 20 days and, and did not die because of, of a rejection of the baboon heart. The baboon heart worked great. Uh, but died for for other reasons that I that I talk about in the book. So this was tragic that that this single mother lost this this child. Um, but it was also the stimulus for, for you know the reason that the reason that that Bailey did this surgery is because there were no donor neonatal hearts. So 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 with all of the media coverage after this took place, then there became. Um, the, the, this kind of um, ways for for people to donate if they lost a, 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 a newborn to donate their hearts. And Bailey did over 200 surgeries on infants transplanting hearts, never had to go back and and do a baboon heart because of the media coverage that baby Faye received. And, and sort of on the other side of that coin, the the defects that that we that are character that characterize some some neonatal hearts instead of trans instead of a transplant they can go in now and and fix the problem and so I show this this incredible series of surgeries that in the case so if baby Faye were around today if it were, were born today they wouldn't give her a heart transplant at least not for several years they would reroute her heart so that the left side which didn't work very well wasn't really doing much at all and they would just change the circuit of the of the blood flow so that the right side was pumping the blood out to the body and the blood returning from the body instead of going to the right side would go directly to the lungs so all of that i think happened uh, because of 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 this at the t- of what was at the time a very tragic incident and to me it was the opposite of galen where with this thing just this the, the you know this stagnation and lockstep following of this uh, ancient uh, surgeon just carried on for 1500 years yeah and and the other that's fascinating and the other the other aspect of that i thought was interesting with both baby faye and barney clark who was a recipient of a mechanical heart um is the is the outrage about the lack of ethics behind yeah. those operations and i'm looking at those operations i'm thinking there is no lack of ethics here but it just freaks people out i mean the baby baby Faye was going to die and this was a, a, a bold experiment and barney clark i mean he was going to die and it was another bold experiment that everyone agreed to and yet yet the, the public reaction to it was powerful and like you said it changed the way things are done um and also exposed that I don't think, I think people react to things without, the way people react to things, the way our society reacts to things doesn't always make sense. Yeah, I, in, the, in the case of Baby Faye, and, and especially, the media was really cruel to the mother because she was a single mom. They were really cruel to Bailey because they thought that he was uh, seeking recognition and fame. And in reality, nobody ever said a bad word about, uh, about Bailey. And, and he never performed another one of these surgeries. That baby Faye almost died the night before. It, 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 they, they basically told Baby Faye's mom, well, you could take this. This is before the transplant was, a, was, was a, 
uh, you know, was offered, you could take baby Faye home and, and it'll die. You can keep it at this hospital and, and, and she'll die. Or you can move it to another hospital and she'll die. So that was it. There, there were no alternatives. Um, and, and, and so initially, at least, the, uh, the, the media coverage was, was very negative and, and it got better. It did, yeah. get, it did get better. Uh, let's end with this. I, let's end with something that has to do with the future, I think, more than the past. And that is the current status of the technology that involves perhaps building a frame. And this was something done here at the University of Minnesota. Um, Doris Taylor, unfortunately, she's been poached by Texas. All great work in the University of Minnesota is followed by someone getting poached by Texas. Um, and uh, who, who basically created a, a, a framework a collagen framework from a pig heart mm -hmm. to use to build a human heart. And that overlapping technology with CRISPR. Is CRISPR currently being used, actually being used to modify transplant material to make it useful? Or is it just something that's on the drawing board right now? What yeah, I, I, there are all sorts of, of research efforts right now to cope with the fact that we just don't have enough donor hearts. And so one way to look at it is a xenotransplant where you take a, a pig heart, but you now have to worry about things like viruses and, 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 and porcine viruses are problematic. Just like primate viruses would be problematic if you were gonna, if you were gonna transplant um, you know, a baboon heart. But, but, but you're not gonna transplant baboon hearts anymore because they don't, uh, they don't have enough offspring. Whereas pigs crank out a lot of babies and you could generate a lot of, potentially a lot of hearts. So yeah, that's one way that we're trying to make, um, uh, provide hearts that could be, uh, that, that could take the, the um, take the pressure off the fact that we don't have enough human hearts. Now, by the same token, I went up to Harvard and, and followed up with, with Dr. Harold Ott, who's taking what you mentioned before. He's taking a donor heart and, and, and stripping away with a, a detergent drip, all of the cells that your body would react to if you took that heart off of, uh, off of a, a donor and just put it into any person, that not matching up tissues, not matching up blood types, that would be the problem. So what he's doing is getting rid of all of the cells that your body would have a reaction to. And then the, the idea being that if you were gonna receive this heart the, as a recipient, they would take a, a, a sample of your skin not a deep biopsy or anything too crazy. They would take a, a sample of your skin and take these cells called fibroblasts. And the technology exists now to convert those cells into stem cells, which the body or, or can stimulate to become any type of cell. And that, that exists. Then take those stem cells and stimulate them to become cardiac muscle cells. That technology exists. Now you've got culture of uh, of cardiac muscle cells that match the recipient. Now what you do is seed those on this, on this structure, on this, this, this collagen model of a heart that's left over from the donor. Uh, and at a certain point, then you transplant that heart into the recipient. So I asked Dot, I was like, that I was, first of all, I was blown away by it. And I said, so how, what type of time frame do you see here? And he said, within 10 years. And, and that, if you think about that, that's amazing. So in a sense, you're growing uh, hearts to order rather than having to wait around to get the right blood type or the right tissue type, or this one is in Alaska. Now we have to transport it across the country. Um, so, so, and it wasn't just heart, it's, it's kidneys, it's livers, it's, it's other organs as well. 
Yeah, the, one of the least accurate things in modern medicine is predicting when the thing you're working on now is going to actually matter. And in many cases, you look back at that and think, well, we thought that because we did a completely different thing in the end. <laughs> so we'll see. I mean, I, I would not be surprised if CRISPR technology ended up being used more directly in, in sick hearts, more likely than in just like rebuilding existing hearts rather than replacing them has become a bigger, has had more potential these days. Um, yeah, that, that, so, so, so some people would argue against that. Like, uh, I think the example that, Ots, uh, that Dr. Ott said is, you know, you don't fix your radiator, you right. replace it. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and yeah, so that's, yeah, who knows? We'll see how it goes. Anyway, I think we're out of time. And Bill, this was a great interview. I think this is a great book. I'd like to know, um, when can I get my copy of the final version? Oh, the final version. It's been out now for going on three weeks. It came oh, out. It's been on, out for three weeks now. Okay. Yeah, it came out on September twenty first. So it's it's available anywhere that uh, that that books are sold. That books are sold. Yeah, any place, in, in any format. Excellent. I will then we'll make sure that people have a link to get it to get their copy. And uh, thanks very much for your time. And uh, can I ask one final question? What's your next book? My next book is um, that I'm working on right now is about teeth. Really, interesting. Well, we're looking yeah. forward to. As, Even as crazier a, than the, the, to me, it's 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 right up there with cannibalism as far as strange uh, strange phenomena. Uh, the, the most interesting teeth to me are obviously I, I I've studied one of my major contributions in my own field of anthropology is looking is explaining changes in in hominin teeth. So send me your stuff on that, and we can talk about it. I might have some. Um, uh, a story or two to tell you about it. Um, oh, sure, no doubt. I'm still, like I said, I'm still, I'm still writing this one, and I haven't quite gotten to to that um, section yet. Where you, where you know, I work at the American Museum of Natural History, and, and yeah. where a lot of my colleagues, what, especially the the older ones and the ones that came before me, a lot of what they know about prehistoric life and 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 the planet itself is based on on, on tales told through teeth. For a huge amounts of what we know teeth is all we had. And an interesting an interesting uh, situation is uh, Gingrich et al. published on Darwinius, which is a primate skeleton and titled the paper something in reference to the term missing link. Mm. And a lot of science writers at the time were getting uh, uh, extremely uh, hot under the collar about the misuse of the term missing link, which is an arguable problem. But Gingrich is making a joke, which is actually very funny and completely lost because most of the science writers couldn't get the joke because they were so apoplectic about the use of the word. Yeah. Darwinius was the first fossil to link the history of primate evolution through teeth of that era versus the history of primate evolution through postcrania. We didn't know which, how to put the lineages together. There's two fundamental different forms of postcrania and we didn't know which one went with the, the, the teeth in the primary lineage people were studying. And of course, this, this is a whole skeleton. So you had the teeth in the postcrania and was able to answer the question directly. Yeah, that's, the, that's usually the problem though. That, that, that postcranial skeleton is, uh, is far more rare in the fossil record than, than teeth are. Teeth right. are, are, are by far and away the most abundant fossil for vertebrates. Right, there are entire lineages that are only known through teeth. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thanks very much. And we're going to right. sign off and pass this on to our, re on to our listeners. Okay. Thank you very much for having me on. Take care. Okay.
But have a good day. Bye now. Right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed this two-part episode with Bill Shutt. His book is Pump. It's out now. We do have an Amazon link in the posts for this. And uh, we will have a new episode up. Um, we haven't actually scheduled the recording yet, but uh, keep listening. One thing that would really help would be if you would like it on your podcatcher and then share it. And uh, once you've done that, then more people will be able to hear it. And eventually we'll build an audience. And uh, thanks again. This is Mike Hobrick with Iconocast. And I want to thank Greg Layden for working on this with me.